Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. This is the place to learn how to get through your worst rock bottom and start to embrace adversity. I'm your host, Petra Belzebor. I'm a therapist and a life coach, but my biggest learning is from my own rock bottom. My story includes being raised in a cult, dealing with depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, and alcoholism. But along the way, I've learned to turn my entire life around to one of success, joy, and fulfillment. So in this podcast, I'll be talking to people from all walks of life who've done the same. I'll be teasing out the skills and tools necessary, as well as using my own experience to teach you how to turn your adversity into your biggest advantage. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm very excited today to introduce Danielle McLeod. Um, She's the ex-customer service director of Sky TV, um, and currently she's one half of a partnership that makes up a business called Somebody Inside, which helps women uncover the secrets to a life of ease and joy. Welcome, Danielle. Hi, thank you so much for having me. That's all right. Did I get all that right? Yeah, you did. Yeah, I mean, um, we've been doing somebody inside for just, uh, it'll be just coming up for a year now, um, but I actually left Sky back in March, so I kind of did the two in parallel for a little while. Oh, wow. And tell us a bit more about somebody inside. What what are you passionate about? Oh, man. So (laughs) I'm really passionate about women getting out of their own way. Um, And I'm super, when I did, when I worked at Sky, we did a lot of work in women in leadership, um, which actually I wasn't really that bought into until they made me the poster girl. Um, And when you're splashed all over YouTube and literally on life-size posters um, Mm -hmm. about women in leadership, I felt like I had to really get closer to it. And I suppose I just got clearer and clearer that um, women need to have more impact in the world. And actually, they hold themselves back. And so somebody inside um, specifically works with women in kind of life scenarios. So I I do coach on career coaching because I tend to find that women want that from me. But the, the business really looks at how do we help women live a life that is not so full of obligation and duty and perfectionism um, and just create more freedom so that they can have more impact. And so is that how we get in our own way, filling up our space and our, using up our energy on obligation? Yeah, I think it's it's two things for me. Um, one is that I think women do get really tied up in I must be all things to all people. And that creates a life of overwhelm um, for many, many women. And the second, of course, is um, this voice in our heads, which we call the crazy lady, otherwise known as the inner critic or the saboteur, um, who just... Uh, send us off on these um, anxiety ridden <laughs> paths that create a lot of problems for us. And so we do a combination of work on external relationships, external life and different life choices, and then work on having a different relationship with that voice in our heads. And I guess learning to say no. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Well, actually, we find it's even more than that. It's learning to ask for what we need and to speak our truth, well, um, so which is no in some sense. But, you know, women are particularly poor at asking for help, would be my experience. Which is interesting because the, the notion in society is that men find it hard to ask for help. Mm, mm. I think women play at it. Yeah. Yeah. We'd, we'd, yeah, I think they play at it. I think there's a, they might ask for the small things, but I think there are a lot of things where they feel like they don't want to impose on people. Um, I think women have a really strong habit of saying other people's no for them. Ooh. As in, I won't ask because they probably can't do it. 
Yeah. So reading their minds or thinking they can um, understand what's okay and what isn't okay in that interaction. Yeah. Yeah. And so a lot of the work we do with women is getting them into the habit of saying, uh, asking for what they need with no expectation, um, just, just getting into the habit of asking and checking in on what they want. You know, women are pleasers. So you do find that even really simple things, we use this as a really simple analogy, but you go to somebody's house and they say, um, red wine or white wine and women have a really strong tendency to go, Oh, whatever's open. Mm. Oh, what a huge metaphor for like everything. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever's open. And it's like, I've got both here. Which do you actually want, you know? Yeah. Um, but that whole thing of, oh, let me not be any trouble. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's really simple shifts that we try to create for women. But of course, it's always the simple things that... Um, Make the biggest big transition, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but then I imagine women aren't looking you up and finding you because they say, teach me to ask for what I need. They must no. be coming to you for a different... What's the reason they actually come to you? Well, we talk a lot in our, in our blogs and our... Um, in our kind of online work about, um, a couple of things really. One is, uh, getting them to realize there is a voice in their head that is affecting their confidence and their ability to get things done. And the other thing is we talk about a life of overwhelm and duty. So we, for example, at the moment we're talking about, um, women being tired when they wake up in the morning because they're already thinking about all the things they've got to get done. (laughs) And so we, um, we shift that into what if all of that could be easy? Um, and we really believe it can. Uh, and so we find women are really drawn to both of those conversations. Um, the one around realizing, I mean, I, I'm blown away by how many women don't know that everybody has a voice in their head. Mm. Um, that gives them a tough time. And actually when you create a sense of you're not alone with this, um, and because we call it the crazy lady, so we have a bit of fun with it. I think people really um, start to play with that. And then what we find is when we start to talk about this, women embodying the sense of tiredness and overwhelm. You know, I am tired is a really, really common phrase with women. Um, that that's an angle we can take really easily that women are very drawn to. Because um, women wake up tired. It's, it's fascinating. Lovely. Okay. So I feel like I could talk to you about this topic like <laughs> all day um, and we'll circle back to it. So like where people can find you and stuff at the end. Um, sure. But I'm really curious about your story and your mm-hmm. development. And of course, we now know, you know, you're passionate about this topic and I imagine it's because it's been true for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so let's go right back. Give us a little bit of context to sort of growing up. What was your culture like? What were the expectations around you as a young girl? What, you know, what was your family set up? Okay. So, um, I, I had a really unusual setup actually. My, um, my father was a, a parish priest, uh, in, in a city, Liverpool. So we lived in, um, in, in probably like one of the worst areas of Liverpool that you can imagine. I mean, to the extent where we had barbed wire around our fence and we had, um, locks on all of our internal doors, we were burgled, you know, two or three times a year easily. Um, but I won a scholarship to, um, a boarding school when I was 12. So I had this really, uh, wonderful life, actually. I think I was really blessed to have it where at home I mixed with, 
um, very working class, probably lots of people who didn't have jobs. And then at school, I was with, um, you know, one of the girls in my year, her dad was Paul Smith's accountant, um, and they had swimming pools and tennis courts. And yeah, so I had this life of um, exposure to so many different people. Um, And so I definitely a girl of the people um and that really fed through into my life really I love to be around people of any type um and I found it easy to mix with any of them and my father had very high expectations of me I think he really wanted me to live the life that he didn't quite manage and so uh, there was pressure, definitely, to... I mean, I remember when I got my first job, which I, well, I was a secretary on a maternity leave contract after I'd left university, and he couldn't understand why I wasn't on the way to being a director of a big company. Right then, fresh um, out of university. Yeah. <laughs> and none of my grades were quite good enough, you know, so I was... I, I wasn't a disappointment. Um, I know I wasn't, but also I was, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I do know, ironically, exactly what you mean. <laughs> but I was brought up to believe I could be whatever I wanted to be, and I'm supremely grateful for that. I, I certainly, even with my business partner who had a very different upbringing, um, I know that that was a great blessing from both my mother and my father. And it sounds like you can say that with, with a little bit of, of perspective, um, <laughs> but I wonder what that, that journey truly was like. I mean, I grew up in lots of different countries, and I could absolutely say I'm the most adaptable person on the planet, can speak to all people from all cult- cultures, classes, uh, you know, backgrounds. Um, mm. But the subtlety was I would turn myself into what they needed me to be, mm. right, mm. super easily because I'm like, hey, I know exactly what you expect within your culture, class, and setup, and so I can yeah. shift. So there's this like now I can look back and go, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's really helped me work with people. I'm a therapist. I'm a coach, you know, a facilitator. I can, get, I can see right through them and what they need, but there was a, period, a long period of time where it was like, I can switch into what you mm. need me to be. I don't know if that mm. relates to, to your journey oh, in the middle. hugely. Does so it, I yeah. actually, I, I call it the chameleon effect. Right. Um, so you know that line in Pretty Woman where he says to Julia Roberts, what's your name? And she says, well, what do you want it to be? Tell me um, <laughs> I really think that's like, for a long time in my life, that was uh, very much how I lived. Yeah. Um, and also there were disappointments along the way. I mean, I, um, you know, we're talking about adversity. I... Um, I've had two eating disorders in my life. And the first one came at the end of my period at, at boarding school where I got a big jolt um, and was introduced to the concept from, you know, the guy who ran the school that I did not fit in there. Um, you know, I was the poor scholarship girl and I shouldn't think I was entitled to what other people were. And um, that was a that was a unexpected um, trauma for me and resulted in, you know, a a fairly significant period of not eating food because that's just where I went to try and control how I was feeling. Yeah. And so other things can be filled with uncertainty and not being Mm. able to control how people view you or where you fit Mm. in, but controlling food can, um, yeah, really feel, feel like it fills that gap for a little while. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And to be honest with you, the only, it's a strange thing, but the only reason I could work out he was really rejecting me was that I was fat. (laughs) Um, That's like a 17 year old's logic, right? So I thought, well, maybe the world will accept me more um, if I'm not. And so um, that's, that's where I went with it. And, and, you know, that's the power of the mind that it's, we think it's speaking sense to us. um, 
but often it's really not. But what it's underlying is saying, I want connection, community, I want to fit in, I want to know where my place is in the world. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And for on sure. the surface, as a young woman, it's like, if I'm just thin enough, oh, the media's got to take some responsibility, the influence on, you know, um, how we view ourselves and what fitting in looks like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, th- I do think um, there are so many messages coming at us that we're trying to work through and filter. And I had really led this incredibly blessed life up until that point. So when somebody literally sits you down and says, you are not as special as you think you are, and they were the words, um, and you're not as special as your parents have brought you up to believe, it's a bolt out of the blue. Because you, you can't even understand why somebody would say that, you no. know? Um, and so then the mind just goes wild with, well, what did I do wrong? <laughs> yeah. Oh, internalizes it. There's mm, something wrong mm. with me. Mm. Huge. Okay. And so relatable to, to so, so many young women and young men out there as yeah, far as sure. how we cope uh, and how yeah. our mental health is impacted. Um, so, so take us beyond that. Um, yeah. Tell us about any sort of, I use the word rock bottoms because that relates <laughs> to me. Um, yeah. Can you relate to that term? Was there a time oh, my- in your life when you just kind of crashed and burned? Yes, completely. Let's so, go there. Um, yeah, <laughs> let's go there because there's so many gems in there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I had a bit of a grapple. Um, you know, as I said, I became a secretary, and I really wanted more. And eventually. Um, I worked my way up to um, becoming very successful in a big international construction consultancy business in London. I was head of HR at 26. Um, And um, I met my now husband there and he lived in Scotland. I lived in London. um, And he had this great idea that I really jumped on and thought was marvellous, that we would set up a business on our own, um, providing... Uh, fixed price construction and project management of house extensions um, and house renovations to the general public using big builders who obviously won't do those kind of projects, but because we had buying power, they would work with us. So that was the concept. Um, We leapt into it thinking, well, you know, he'd been an owner of this big business. I had been head of HR. We were super smart. We knew how to make all of this work. And within, um, we we sold more than we could cope with. And within um, almost 10 months, we were facing, uh, we were looking down the eye of bankruptcy, really. Um, And we didn't go bankrupt because my husband... God only knows how he did it, to be honest, Um, just became incredibly resourceful. And we managed to set up a whole load of loans from banks to allow us to pay off the huge um, financial problem we created for ourselves. We lost every penny that we ever had in terms of equity and assets. And we... um, yeah, we. I mean, you couldn't have been more on the floor, to be honest. It was shameful. It was because we were working with people in Edinburgh, which is a tiny city. You didn't want to be seeing people in the streets um, whose house you'd worked on. Not, we didn't mess up any houses, but we had to leave some mid projects and put other people on them. Um, and we just, you don't want to be seen. You know, when when you experience that level of failure, and that's really what it what it felt like at the time the shame is overwhelming and so literally for weeks I locked myself in a room and played video games um and the first job I got when we were really desperate for cash having been you know head of HR of an international business and having been um 
director of this company, which turned over nearly a million pounds. Um, I was temping, I was secretarial temping, uh, just to bring some cash in. And um, I, oh man, I mean, just some days just getting up was a supreme effort, supreme effort. And I want to highlight your, your connection, because I relate, between shame and isolation. Um, so we feel shame, uh, we, we hide away and it just perpetuates and our mind gets to play on us even more, making the shame yeah. even bigger. And it's that, that sort of cycle. Um, you then, your, your husband's getting very resourceful. You're showing up at what you m- must have thought was, you know, a, a, a bottom feeder job in a way just to mm-hmm. survive. What was the impact there? Um, do you know what? It was good to get out for sure, um, and just be out of the flat, which is where I'd locked myself in for quite some time. I think what was so interesting was the, the first temp job I took was in a property legal firm. It's not quite the same in Scotland, so it's lawyers who do all the property work. And um, I was working for one of the partners, and I rem- I'll never forget this. I walked into this office, and she called in IT to switch off the internet so that I couldn't Skype, basically. <laughs> And she spent a week calling me that girl. Um, and on the and actually, um, in fact, that wasn't the first one. It was the second one. The first one was quite amazing. Actually, I got a job um, during that period. And she found out that I was going to go and be an account manager for a big investment bank doing their HR shared service. And all of a sudden, she treated me like an entirely different person. She wanted me to help her, um, help her daughter get a job. You'll be surprised to hear I did not... I didn't step into that offer at all. And I was just so struck by the dehumanization of people who are not seen to be in worthy jobs um, because she knew nothing about me. Yeah, yeah. And I think that helped in many ways because I think it put a bit of fighting spirit back in. (laughs) um but even you know even when we I left temping I temped for about six weeks and I'd got this new job let's not be persuaded that that was the recovery because it took so much longer than that I mean John and I were paying off debt for three or four years and it was quite incredible that we paid it off that quickly but we were literally going to the bank on a Saturday and taking out um I think, I can't remember what it was, like 50 quid each, and that was our money for the week each, and then the shopping. And I was in a decent job at that point, and that was all the money I had, and my back had gone. I've had back trouble for about 12 years. So all my 50 pounds every week was going on physiotherapy. Um, And so we were literally, you know, in these really good jobs where people thought we were doing really well and we'd recovered, and we had nothing, absolutely nothing. Um... And so whilst you could see that there was a future ahead of you, it's super hard to get up every day and and graft so hard, knowing that that reward isn't going to come for a long, long time. And I feel like maybe we skipped over something important here because you talked about isolating uh, Mm. and playing video games and then we got into the temp job and sort of a, a slow sort of crawl into recovery and building something up. But I, I mean... I just want to put our lens back onto that isolation point mm-hmm. and just, would you describe yourself as depressed? Like how, how low did you go? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, I'll, I'll, let me talk to you about where my real light bulb point was actually. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I mean, it would literally be a point where 
my husband would be out talking to banks, talking to lawyers, you know, doing whatever it took to turn things around. And I'd be sat in my pajamas in the spare room, frying my brain on video games. Um, and I remember, um, and you know, I don't know if you've ever done it, but that feeling of like, you go to sleep at night and all you can see is these little animals running across your head. <laughs> it's, it's just, you know, it's a horrific existence. And um, I remember one day just thinking, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I have to change this. And we lived next to a shopping center. And my mum brought me up to believe that um, the answer to everything was in a book. Um, and so I've been an avid reader all my life and I hadn't read anything for a long time. And I went into Waterstones and I went to the self-help section. And, and I think at that point in my life, I'd probably never read a self-help book ever. Okay. Um, and I just flicked and flicked. I sat there for like, I don't know, a couple of hours and I found this book. And it was called, I remember, it was called Beat Depression. And it was by somebody, Frank somebody. It, you know, it wouldn't be a big famous book or anything. And when I opened the book, he had written it in as though he was talking to one person. Mm. So it was very clear that this book is for you. And as I read it, I um, it, he was talking to me. And so I bought the book with, like, whatever pennies it was that we had left. And I went and sat in a bench outside the shopping centre. And I just sat and cried for, I don't know, hours, really, as I read this book. And um, he probably gave about, I don't know, 10 or 20 recovery tips. So one was that you had to be outside more. And and the second was that um, you you should get a, a pet mm. um, to kind of, because pets love you unconditionally and they don't care whether you're upset or not. If they need a walk, they need a walk and all the rest of it. And you've got it. to get up to walk them or look after yeah, them whether yeah, you yeah. feel like it or not. And, and I should be clear that prior to this, I had gone to the doctor and, um, and that was incredibly shameful for me as well. I didn't want to see a doctor and I'll never forget it. I walked into this, um, I walked into his office and with all the courage I had, I said, um, something along the lines of I think I'm a bit broken um I'm not functioning properly our business has gone bust I can't stop crying I don't sleep at night blah 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 and I swear to you he said well this is only a 10 minute appointment I haven't got time to do all this with you can you come back and make another one that's it yeah welcome Uh, to the real world and you were just like are you kidding me of course I'm not gonna come back it's nearly killed me to get here in the first place. my way here today you know there's no way I'm going to come back and so because he in my mind he wasn't going to help me and actually he just thought I was some annoying woman um who you know that was my interpretation I don't know whether that was true or not but it was still dismissive yeah yeah I had to find a book and um I don't really know what the turnaround point was but I do know that we went and got a dog Uh, who we still have now. Um, I just said before we went live on this that I've put him in the kitchen so he doesn't bark. He's nearly 16 now. So I'll show you how he was two when we got him. Um, And if nothing else, uh, because we had to adjust him to the house, he was um, a rescue dog, Um, because we had to adjust him to the house and because at that time he was only young, he was two, he needed a lot of exercise. I had no choice because my husband was out sorting everything else out, but to look after this dog. Um, and so I think he filled a space that the video games were filling in a much healthier way. Of course. Mm. 
So, so you get this dog, you slowly begin to create new habits around routine mm. or about showing up in the world and not hiding from it. Yeah. Um, yeah. What happened next? Yeah. And just as you say that, I should be really clear. This is very, very, very unusual behavior for me. You know, um, I'm the sort of person that nobody would ever anticipate would have had these experiences. It's part of why I wanted to do the podcast with you, actually, because one of the things I experience in my life is people make up I've got everything nailed. Um, And so nobody would have worked out that I felt like this. It was really only my husband who saw it. And certainly my family wouldn't have known until after I'd fixed it. Of course. Because um, you're, that's the you're isolating so that nobody can yeah, see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but interesting I'm, again, just link to like the work that you do now, the the person yeah. that we show up as or present to the world. You know, everyone's got a story. Everyone's got something underneath that. And if we yeah. can just open up and connect, we can you know really bond and realize that as humanity, we, you know, we all have these stories and can work together to move forward. Yeah. And I remember one of my teachers in, in later life saying, you know, you didn't, you didn't create any of these problems, Danielle, they are not unique to you. And actually that being incredibly um, relieving mm. that, cause I think we can walk around with a story that I am the only one who creates this in my life. I'm the only one who, not, I'm, I'm not a sufferer. I'm not a victim, but like, I don't need to impose this on other people. Um, they don't need to hear my sob stories. And actually, of course, what I've learned over the years is the more I share them, the more connected people come become with mm. me. So, so there was a very gentle path to recovery, um, after that, which became very much, I think it was the first point in my life where I got really interested in self-discovery, um, and in creating more tools to become more resilient, I, hadn't, I didn't want to find myself in that scenario again. So at this point, I'd had one eating disorder. I'd then had this bout of depression. I think they're all pretty much they're the same thing manifested in different ways. Absolutely, would be my experience. Shame, um, shame and disconnection. Yeah, exactly. That results in a in the mind, um, and I think I, I don't think I was clinically depressed. I think that's different. But um, you know, for sure, the mind had spiraled out of control, and so finding gentle ways to recover it was really important. I was very lucky in that um, the job I, the, the job I got as an account manager was an awful job. <laughs> it really was horrendous. Um, one of those jobs where you walk in and you go, oh no, I'm going to have to do this for a year just to look good on my <laughs> TV. <to> survive. <laughs> yeah, but it actually led to me joining Sky. So the work I did there, um, Sky were looking for somebody in Edinburgh who could do it. And there were so few of us that I think um, it pretty much had my name on it. And so I found myself in an organization where I could flourish and where my skills were very much wanted. Having come to Scotland and really struggled to get work because I was too young, people in Scotland didn't believe I'd done. Because London's very different, you know. I'd been in London for years. And you can accelerate in London in different ways than you can in other places. And so I was finally kind of building my credibility again. Um, And that all became... Uh, hugely successful. So kind of six years at Sky. Um, and then one day I got a call. So here's another rock bottom for you. You can have a selection of them. I, I one love day, a few. <laughs> I've, I, I've got loads. <laughs> one day I got a call from a headhunter and he said, um, I've got this job. What will it take for you to leave Sky? We know you love it. And I said, it will take a brand that inspires me, a leader who 
makes me passionate about what I'm doing and a really clear connection to my purpose, which I was pretty clear. I've always been clear that I want to make a difference in people's lives and I, I want people to feel like they matter and that they are contributing in the world. And he says, I've got just the job for you. And um, so I said, well, I'll take a look, even though I wasn't um, interested in other work at all. And I ended up going to an organization to become their HR director, totally believing that this was my absolute calling in life, believing that this organization was where I was supposed to be, that this person who was leading it was the leader that I was supposed to work for. Um, uh -oh. And I, it was, have you seen the film Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Oh, many moons ago. Yeah. So yeah. I describe it as um, I was caught by the child catcher. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so, so I got into this organization and it was not on any level um, what I had believed it would be to the point where I, I, I watched grown men cry. Um, it, it was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. Some really good people, but a, a level of leadership that was unexpected. Um, and I started to crumble again. And I, I remember my husband just saying, Danielle, please leave, please leave, please leave. And I said, I can't. I, I don't, I'm so fearful of having the conversation that I don't know how to go. And um, he said to me, well, just write an email. He said, write an email. I will take your car in on Monday, switch your BlackBerry off. And, and I'm like, I'm the HR director. You know, mm. people don't do this. And I just thought it's the only hope I've got of getting out of here. So that's what I did. And, um, I walked, I literally walked out of this job that had been, I thought was my dream. And so this, you can imagine the shame bomb with that one. <laughs> yeah. And the, the fear, you know, in doing it in the first place based yeah. on, you know, not being employed, your business crashing previously and just yeah, thinking, exactly. Hey, if I let go of this, you know, what, what else yeah. is there? What do I have left? Yeah. And so I was really, really blessed in this scenario. I, I mean, I was, I cannot tell you how rock bottom that was for me. Um, and, but I was so lucky that the universe was holding me. No question that night, uh, the Monday night after I had sent my resignation in on the Sunday, I was due to go out with some old friends from Skype. And so I texted one of them to say, look, you won't get me on my email address because I've left. Um, here's my new one. And I remember her sending a note back going, thank God, <laughs> thank God you've left. <laughs> and I went to this dinner and um, my now business partner, who I did not know, uh, didn't know her at all, came up to me at the end of the night and she said, I don't know what's going on for you, um, but something is. Here's my business card. I will help you. Um and I was like, all oh, right, okay. And I went we, I went out and got very drunk, did karaoke with some friends. Um, makes, singing makes is always a good sense. cure for me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, the next day, of course, I woke up and I was just like at the crying machine again. And I remember my husband saying to me, I don't know what to do with you, Danielle. You're like, I feel like I need to wrap you up in cotton wool. You're just so sad. And I, I remember looking at him and I had this business card. And I went, I've got this. <laughs> and he said, well, who, who is she? And I said, I have no idea. <laughs> but I hear good things about her. She was the head of um, talent development. And uh, he said, well, just call her. What have you got to lose? And um, she, uh, about three days later, she sat with me at Sky um, for about three hours in a meeting room. I mean, imagine even just going back there having left, which was a big thing for me. Mm. Um, and she coached me for about three hours. And we unwrapped all kinds of things, um, all kinds of points in my life, which had led to me embodying this shame at the level that I was. And um, 
she said to me, you're going to be a bit broken for the next few days. And I remember I just cried constantly for about a week, but it was a release, which is really different. You know, there's a difference between the crying that is attachment to the problem and the suffering. Yeah. And the the crying that's the letting go. Oh, there is a huge difference. Yeah. Mm. And so I I shifted into the, the, the pure physicality of the release of the emotion. Um, which was still quite overwhelming, but it, but every time I cried, something left me in a good way. Um, and so I was then invited to go back to Sky. Uh, they offered me seven different jobs, which was amazing. Um, and I went back to do something I had never done before. I still had to battle the shame. Um, I remember just not wanting to talk to people on the stairs, you know, because some people didn't even know I'd left. So. <laughs> And and they'll be like, oh, I haven't seen you for ages and hiding in toilets and all kinds of things, but really being very held. Um, And that's probably the point at which I started to build the toolkit again. So introducing myself to meditation, starting um, journaling more um, and starting to explore um, how to, again, just build my resilience. Um, and, and that's been a, that's a lifetime journey for me now. I really do describe myself as a wounded healer. Um, you know that, and, and there are more rock bottoms, but you, you don't need more. I think there's probably <laughs> enough here for you to work with. But um, this whole concept that I think once you latch onto it, it's just so powerful that you can build rhythms and routines into your life and you can start to change the relationship with the mind such that, when the bad days come and they do still come, that you respond differently, you pick yourself up faster and you have more things to go to that help you recover. And so I think it, I, I can't envisage now and, you know, I have no wood around to touch. I can't envisage having a zero out of 10 day anymore. Um, and there have certainly been scenarios where you would think that could have been possible in later years because I have an ability now to say, well, this might be a bad day, but it doesn't have to be the worst day ever. Um, and to build in to, even if I don't want to do it, you know, to get fresh air, to practice meditation, to, to get my journal out and just vent whatever it takes. I have a probably 20 or 30 tools in my toolkit now that, um, can take it from a zero out of 10 day to at least a two, you know, and some days a two is good enough because yeah, a two yeah. means a two means you're not locked in and you're not, you're not at war with the mind. And I guess you're, you're not kind of perpetuating self-defeating thoughts that if this is a shit day, the next two, the next yeah. three, the next seven, the next year, you know, that hopeless yeah. feeling that this is it. You've, yeah. you've got tools to, to get you out of it. Yeah. Because I have an experience now of recovery. Um, and you know, you know sex, exactly. Yeah, I have several experiences of it, and I also know that. I mean, there are things that I can do that are daft because I believe the answers in a book. Sometimes I'll become like the queen of Google, um, and Google is is rarely the place you're going to find. I was going to say, <laughs> yeah, it's rarely the place you're going to find your solace. You know, but you can yeah, find yeah, more yeah. confusion, right, and distraction. Exactly. But there are certain books that I know are uplifting for me. So, you know, you'll laugh because this is so archetypal, but Eat, Pray, Love is a classic. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't read many books more than once, but that's one I know that um, if I just need to find some refuge in a safe place, it's a great place 
you know, I can go to Bali for a while or Italy or... <laughs> sure, you can eat, pray and love, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and people would laugh about that with me because I don't think many people would think that's a book I would turn to. But, you know, I have places now that I can go um, that remind me I do not have to continue in this vein. And I can have a whole bad week, you know, let's, let's not kid sure, ourselves. Sure, sure. We live in the real world. Life can yeah. be hard challenging but my relationship with it is different and I'm not bought into I'm not bought into what that whatever my mind says is the truth anymore um because actually my experiences uh particularly when you start to dive bomb that it's anxiety that you're handling and it's fear about the future and so if you can the more you can do to bring yourself back to the present moment to say right here right now what is happening that is bad, um, the more you realize nothing. You know, I'm having a conversation with you, so I might want to worry about, will I earn enough in two years' time to keep my business together? But right here, that's not an important question. Refocusing the mind. Um, yeah. F- finish, finish this sentence for me. I am strong because... Wow. <laughs> okay. I am strong because... I know how to recover. I know how to recover. Yeah. Um, And if you could look back on the past and the multiple rock bottoms that you have had, starting right back from the eating disorder um, to the ones that you haven't mentioned, um, Mm. what would you want to change? Um, Nothing. Nothing. Because I wouldn't be who I am today without them. And I'm really proud of who I am today. What are you proud I'm of? Really, I'm proud of um, the impact that I've had in my life. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, we built a school in India. I'm proud that at Sky, I got to lead 10,000 people and I learned how to do it from the heart and not from the head. I'm proud of the friendships I've cultivated, the relationships in my life, my marriage, Um I am proud to be in my own skin and my skin is shaped and molded through those times. And I really believe Petra, I really believe that that life is about contrast. And for those of us who experience the darkness at its very depth, we also get to celebrate the light in its most extreme vibrancy and the light doesn't have any impact if there's no darkness to shine against. <laughs> um, and so would I, do I want to be back in those places? No, of course I don't. And do I know that if I go there, I can come out? Yeah, yeah, I do. And I know that every time I have been there, um, I've grown new wings, you know? And um, we get, so we, I wouldn't Yeah, we, we sort of cultivate our superpowers within those darkest yeah. times. Yeah, and and I really, I totally value and am supremely grateful for my role in this world as a leader and a healer, um, a healer of the mind, because um, I, I want a life of impact. And so I do not believe it is easy, or I don't even know if it's possible, and you would have a different experience than me. I'd probably love to know your thoughts. Is it possible to heal others if you have no experience, no experience of what it feels like to be in their shoes? 
I don't know. I would say you're probably right. I'm not sure it's possible in the same way. You can have some mm-hmm. impact through theory and learning, but mm-hmm. it's the lived experience that connects us and connection heals us. Yeah. So finally, um, mm-hmm. what advice would you give to somebody who might be facing their rock bottom now? They might be in their room on their, you know, uh, Xbox or whatever, um, or, or worse, you know, using substances, trying to um, numb the pain in some way. Um, so they're in it. What advice yeah. would you give now that you have this perspective? So I'd, I'd like to give a couple of things, recognizing that some things may be more achievable than others. So I think my ideal advice, and I know that there are days where this is just too hard, is, you know, crawl outside. <laughs> And you mean that quite literally, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. I mean, crawl outside, feel the air in your skin um, and remind yourself that you can have more. And this for me has been a really strong part of my healing around body image and food. And, you know, I also teach in those spaces as well. Um, Then I really... I'm in love with um, Brené Brown's um, shitty first draft technique. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, Not sure I am. I do read all the books. I'm reading her newest one around belonging. It's in in, uh, Rising Strong. Okay. And um, she nicked the shitty first draft from a supremely talented writer called Anne Lamott. But this is what she says, that when the mind, when you are down, face down in the arena. Oh, yes that um, journaling is a supremely powerful technique for you. And she describes this technique as the shitty first draft because it is the opportunity to put a pen to paper and let your mind run wild. So to express the emotions that have become unsayable for you, to let your five-year-old speak and say, this is not fair, this is not right, Um, why is this happening to me? All of those words that you are trapping inside of yourself because you think they're unacceptable or unspeakable, then give them to a piece of paper, you know, and just write and write and write until you have no words left to say Um, and let them get out of your mind um, and keep doing it. You know, and even if you're locked in a room and you can't face going out into the world, this is a technique that you can always do because all you need is a piece of paper and a pen. And so find the energy. If you can't even do that, speak into a dictaphone on your on your iPhone, you know, whatever it takes or speak it aloud to yourself. But say all of those words. Um, it's, is it going to heal everything? No, of course not. But I think the unspoken, the unsayables in our lives get us, get the mind in a lot of Festers, trouble. Festers, right? The un- yeah. The unsaid yeah. things. Yeah. Kind of fester and come out in the most toxic ways. Yeah. And so a piece of paper and a pen is like your best friend. Okay. Um, right. Yeah. Shitty first draft. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're not a writer, do it in pictures. You know, there's Absolutely. some amazing things on Pinterest of creative art journaling that will let you do in pictures. There's because there's no rules about this stuff. It's your piece of paper. No one ever has to see it. You know. Yeah. Um, Danielle, thank you so much for being so open with us and and giving us your tips and tricks and you know what you've learned along the way. Um, where where can people find you if they they want to know more about your business or on social media? Where can they find you? So the two best places are we're on Facebook. Um, and we've got quite a good followership there and some good engagement. It's called Somebody Inside. And actually, we're about to, a couple of weeks, we'll be doing some Facebook Lives on creating an easier life. 
Oh, love it. Um, so now's the time to, <laughs> yeah, to come and play with that. And also um, our website is uh, somebodyinside.com. So really easy to find us. And Petra, thank you so much. I, uh, thank you for opening up this conversation because I think it's easy to see people who are successful and believe that their journey was somehow fairy tales and roses. Um, and I, I think that's very rarely the experience. Really? And also what I appreciated about your story and of the, the other people that I interview is that it isn't like, oh, I've now cracked this, now life is easy. But it mm. is, I now have a toolkit to go to when life is hard, you know? Yeah. And that yeah. It, it's not tying it all up nicely in a bow and that's the finished product. It's going, hey, life's messy. I've learned all about, you know, how not to go back to that really, really dark place. But in order for me to achieve full success consistently, um, I need to put these things in place consistently. Yeah, yeah. And not abandon them when everything feels good because that's a real temptation as well. Yeah. And so (laughs) I've always got to go like, uh, this is my preventative measure for success so that when crisis hits, I'm ready. Yeah. It's like like your daily vitamins, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Just inoculate yourself, right? Um, Yeah. And rise strong. Danielle, I appreciate you so much. Thank you for being Uh, here. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If something helped you today, please do share this episode with a friend and let them know that they are not alone. I know that for me, isolation kept me stuck much longer than I needed to be. So let's practice courage and talk to someone about what's going on as that's the first step to making life amazing. Check out my website, petravelsboer.com, for your free Kickstarter plan, which will teach you to turn your biggest weaknesses into your greatest strengths. Join the community of people who are changing the way they view life's challenges and living life to the full. Until next time, goodbye.